0: but like i say, i really think this is going to be a rambly podcast we we don't have any focused plans but let's face it that's also not that unusual for us
1: no just that we 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 start rambling when we're not planning on rambling so maybe if we plan on rambling we'll start focusing
0: or we will invent an entirely new sort of level to fall to rambling wise because you know that, that's entirely possible that awesome. too right yeah, any poor mad person who ever downloads the podcast anyway let's see how this works out let's see if i remember what happens next i ah, yes and good morning gary
1: and good evening jonathan on what i take as another very warm and humid tropical day in perth
0: no no it's not <laughs> it's actually it's not one of those r- sort of breaks in the weather. It's um, about 22 degrees centigrade here. It's a little bit overcast. I've just been out with the family for an early breakfast on Sunday, which we don't do that often. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, apart from an ocean load of work, I, I sat there with my uh, email inbox the other day and I worked out my to-do list for the moment, you know, my current to-do list. And it would scare children, I tell you.
1: But that's life. I, on the other am... Oh, um, um. I, I suddenly realize this. This happens about once a year for two or three months. I'm almost at the end of my to do list. I hate you. I'm almost at, I, I, I you, you can you can hate me, but then again, you know, I'm not producing dozens of terrific anthologies every year. I just do what people send to me.
0: Um, <gasps> I think you underestimate it, Gary. I mean come on, you've done the, oh, the Library of America thing, you've got projects in the background, it, you just judge the Shirley Jacksons, you're running the Crawfords. This is like a PR thing for you. Maybe I should... Do, I'd like to call everybody's attention to Karen Burnham's current Hugo campaign. Look it up. Google Karen Burnham's Hugo campaign and we shall say no more of the subject. But yes, you've got lots on. Mm.
1: I'm not saying that I'm without stuff to do. I'm saying that, the, that I have a March 1st deadline for an essay, yep. uh, which I agreed to last December. After that, Except, if, unless I'm mistaken, after that, except for my monthly locus column, I don't have any looming deadlines for things like that. Okay. Unless, as, as happens to me about two or three times a year, I get an email saying, uh, here's just a reminder of that essay you agreed to write seven months ago, and, <laughs> and, and I think, what essay? What was that? And then I go back and dig up my own emails, and by golly, I said
0: yes. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you are making a terrible tactical error, Gary. Because after all, here you are on a podcast that has an audience of somewhere between three hundred to a thousand people or so, and my guess is a certain percentage of them will want you to do something for them, Gary. And you just told them all you've got free time. One of the nice things, one of the nice things about
1: having a monthly deadline, and mm. I've, I've done both. I mean, although I've had this monthly deadline with Locust for, for decades, yeah. before that, you try to get stuff up. With a monthly deadline, you never have free time. Uh, no, I'm trying to. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of limit the amount of reading and writing I do for Locus, uh, simply because Charles was insane about asking me to do everything. Yep. But the fact is that you know, if you've got extra time, you've read four or five books for the month, and you've got um, a week left, and you read another book. So you 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 never run out of deadlines. It's like It must be the same way doing anthologies. Somebody is always sending you a story for something, and there's always another story coming in to read.
0: Well, either that or there's some new phase to things. I mean, uh, there's one book I've been working on, and it's basically done. You know, I mean, my involvement is mostly over, but, you know, my agent sold it into a new territory, and suddenly I had to get some more rights for it, so I had to go back and renegotiate contracts on something mm. I thought was done. And that overlaps with, you know, just quietly, it looks like I've sold another book this week. And mm. uh, there's getting that launched and that project underway. There's another one m- moving towards sort of completion. Um, I currently have, and I'm looking over my shoulder as I speak, Gary. Not one, not two, not three, but four cartons of my best science fiction of the year, volume six in the house, um, and all mm-hmm. kinds of paper. So, yeah, it, there's always something coming up. It's in, uh, uh, and, I mean, it's great. I mean, like, this week I got a story in the mail from Al Reynolds, um, which I purchased for Edge of Infinity, which is coming out at the end of the year. And great story, very happy. But there's always something, and then there's, there's either what you've actually got or what you're um, chasing. And so there's always that kind of a thing. You know, that's that's life. It's, it's the business. I, I, one of the one of the exciting
1: things, and this is something where I I think I can envy you and uh, and, and Sheila and, and and Gordon and anybody who gets the first look at a a new story. Uh, that on the one hand that has to be a perfectly exciting feeling. On the other hand, you have no guidance to go. Mm. Uh, you, you know, this is outside. Here's an Al Reynolds story, or or here's a Kelly Link story, or here's a Margot Lanigan story. And you may be the first person to see it outside of that writer's immediate circle of friends, and you're rendering a judgment with no buzz at all. And yep. I think that's both exhilarating and a little bit intimidating. If you ever had the experience, as I have, of really, really liking a story that nobody else had any interest in at all, or really finding a story uninteresting and boring that turned out to be that year's classic Hugo winner?
0: Yes, to all of those things. I have run stories in my books that I've loved that nobody else has commented on or picked up or anything like that uh, a number of times, and I'm not going to especially name names because I think that always causes problems. I've hmm. certainly, I, the, I've stories end up on major award ballots that I thought at the time, yeah, it's alright, but uh, it didn't particularly knock my socks off. And I've also had that thing where, you know, you get a story in from crushingly big name kind of thing particularly, and you kind of go, hopefully this is going to work out. And as you know, because you're within my circle of friends, every now and again, rarely I'll even bounce something out to somebody else to look at with me just mm. because you're kind of going, is this one just outside my taste or am I just missing that and I want to give it another, another you know, look? Uh, so, yeah. you know, it, it, but it, it's exciting, it's sometimes challenging, but it's, it's, it's worth it. There is one thing I... I, I should can yes, follow- right, Yeah.
1: Well Go ahead and finish here, what your... No, no,
0: that's fine. I was going to change the topic a little bit, so what are you going to say? I was just going to
1: say, do you, do you think you can recognize a trunk story when you see one?
0: Yes, I do, very much. Yeah, uh, I had that same... So. Yeah, you know, particularly if you're reading regularly uh, around the field, and that author is one who... Uh, in fact, you know what, even if they don't pub- publish all that much... There's just a feel to it, and it might be just something that you're constructing yourself or that you fictionalize as as you watch or as you read. But there is that feeling that it's not quite up to the same level of whatever they're doing. It's And you may be wrong, but, yeah, sometimes you you feel it either it's pure trunk or they've been swinging away at it in the background for eight or ten years and never quite been able to get it work, to work, and now they're letting it out into the world in the hope that maybe they were just wrong. So, yeah, you know that's the sense I
1: have. Every once in a while you'll read a story. And as as you know, if it's a major writer, sooner or later it's going to get published
0: somewhere. And almost well, well, certainly, yes. And certainly stories I have rejected have ended up in other other places. And in one or two cases when projects have fallen apart or whatever, or there have been problems, those stories have ended up elsewhere. So, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: And the sense I usually have is um, with a writer that you're at all familiar with, you can get a sense of whether this... This story looks like what this person was doing five or six years ago, or this story look. You can tell when somebody's make when somebody's doing something new and when somebody's recycling material. And most of the writers that we like try to do new and different things every time out. Hmm. Uh, so when they when they don't do that, then then it, I think it, it it does stand out. I think there's kind of a neon light on it.
0: Also, it's not always the case, and I, I wouldn't want to oversimplify it. But when you're reading someone regularly you pick up on the way they evolve as, writer, as a writer. So even if the subject matter is something they were addressing in the past, there's something mm-hmm. about the way they are writing it that feels more like something they did some time ago rather than what they're doing at the moment. Well, that, yeah, that's more... Yeah. More I that, that, of yeah, that, yeah that, I, that, that, I, that tends to sort of happen. But it's the nature of the beast. You know, it is. I do feel the need to clarify something on the podcast, Gary. Mm-hmm. Based on some email that I received today. Now I'm not even really supposed to talk about this, so you know I'm hoping that everybody on the p- listening to the podcast will be good and won't tell anybody else who's not listening to the podcast that we'll keep it amongst ourselves. So you know if you can't promise to do that, could you please just pre- just skip this next little bit? Um, I made passing reference that Eclipse Four was the final volume in the Eclipse series, mm-hmm. uh, and there's not been any p- public announcement. But I will say to clarify for anybody listening um, that as much as I love and adore the Eclipse series, at the moment there won't be a, a another Eclipse anthology, print anthology. Uh, Eclipse, you know, Eclipse 5, which I was working on, is, has mm-hmm. been ended, unfortunately. Uh, and you can see evidence of that. One of the stories from Eclipse 5 has already been published. Uh, the latest mm-hmm. issue of Ark, has, the first issue of Arc has come out and the Mike Harrison story in there was to have been in Eclipse 5, something which makes me very sad, but that's life. However, I can say there is a future for Eclipse, and I've already bought stories for it and edited those stories, and I'm very, very, very excited about some of them. So hopefully sometime in the next month or so, there will be an announcement and a start of something and all that kind of thing, and you'll be able to see what we're doing. Um, I think starting with a story called The Constant Gardener, I think, by young Christopher Rowe, which is really terrific, uh, and a very good KJ Parker story and moving forward from there. So hopefully the announcement will be out soon, but uh, that's all set to go. So Eclipse
1: as an entity is not dead, but we probably will not hold in our hands another Eclipse.
0: Well, uh, okay, let me talk philosophically around this. All right, talk philosophically. Um, Eclipse started as a wild idea, and it didn't have a distinct personality, and over four books, um, it evolved one to the point where it probably lives inside my, my blind spot. I mean, I thought Eclipse 4 was a weaker book than everybody else out there thought it was, so I've had to go back and rethink it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very interesting experience, I have to tell you. Uh, but what it's come to be for me is, a, if you like, a bit of a banner under which things I really like get published. Now, it's going through a phase, or about to enter a phase, I hope, that will be very exciting and interesting, and there'll be more Eclipse coming out. Uh, but I would not say we've seen the end of a print Eclipse ever. Uh, I could mm-hmm. see even if this you know, sort of thing that it's going to transition into next... Changes that I could see attempting to bring it back to life in the future again. Uh, It's something I'd like to stick with. Um, I did briefly consider becoming a publisher myself and doing the whole Kickstarter thing and all that for Eclipse. And who knows, maybe at some point in the future that could happen. Um, But at the moment, it's going the way it is, and then I'll see where we are and how that performs. But I feel like it, it was just evolving into something interesting and it probably needed another four or five volumes to really solidify into what I wanted it to be, and so I don't intend to walk away from it no matter what happens. I think one way or the other I will come back around to it, I think.
1: Well, you had mentioned in, um, in, in, in one of your introductions, or maybe more than one of them, of the uh, antecedents of, of Terry Carr and mm-hmm. Damon Knight in the great paper ontology series, and I think you're right you had to have a certain number of orbits or universes before. Looking back on them now, we can see that there was almost a whole movement of science fiction that started out in those uh, anthologies. Hmm. And I can, I, I, if I were in your position, I would very much want to get to that critical mass. It's almost like having... Um, I don't know if this is an issue in Australia, but in, in America, one of the big, big issues about television situation comedies is to keep them on the air until they get to some magic number of 100 episodes or something. Yeah. At yes. which point... You can cancel the show because if it has enough episodes to go into syndication, it's going to make huge amounts of money. Forever, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it's it's kind of the same thing, that there's a critical mass for original anthologies before they become part of science fiction history.
0: I think that might be true. And I mean, I'm already – this sounds very arrogant or self-obsessed, and we're just talking about me at the moment, which isn't good, but um, – four is quite a bit these days i don't think many of the um anthology series actually got to a volume four of late but i sort of think it's when you get start rolling through i mean when i got um the best science fiction and fantasy of the year volume six the other week there's something about like i mean a volume six sounds like you've been around for a while and when you get to like volume 10 or something well then you're part of the scene uh i mean like i just saw the announcement i think it was for volume seventeen of the Hartwell Year's best, and we're in volume twenty eight of the Deswar Year's best and these kind of things. And when you look at orbit seventeen and eighteen, you know, it goes right. through a long period of time of a concerted effort to try and build something. And I'd love to have the chance to do that. I mean I'm I'm I I won't deny, though it's not a bad thing I, I won't deny that I was dis- disappointed that there won't immediately be an Eclipse 5. I was really looking forward to a chance to do that. That said, since Eclipse is continuing, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, but I can also see there being, at some stage, depending on what happens, either a long, long, happy, healthy life for the new phase that Eclipse is going to go into. And I know I'm, not, I'm deliberately not saying what that is. Um, mm-hmm. And also, but but also a possible phase beyond that, you know. So I'm just going to sort of keep writing it. I mean, and for a long time I thought that Idolon would be the brand brand name under which I did stuff, and Coot Street, which is you know, obviously covers the podcast and everything else. Uh, but I could certainly see um, that I would be doing Eclipse in some form in ten or fifteen years. I'd certainly like to still be doing it. So
1: yeah. Well, it's certainly a name that's associated with Gurney at this point. I think that's one of the that's one of mm. the benchmarks. Is, yeah. is that you know when you hear the word orbit in terms of science fiction, you think of Damon Knight. Yeah. Um, and well, shifting back to that a little bit because um, that, that takes us back to this historical perspective that we were talking about yeah. with Bret Malzberg last week. Yep. Yeah. And just to emphasize uh, a couple of footnotes to to, to that podcast uh, afterwards uh, or while we were having it, I was in the process of um, reading a new collection of um, a new collection of old Robert Sheckley stories um, edit, edited by Jonathan Nathan and Alex Abramovich for the New York Review Press, which is the New York Review, of essentially the publishing arm of the New York Review books, which is, if anything, as establishment or possibly more, hmm. um, you know, neoliterate establishment and even something like the Library of America is. Um, they hold up really well, but I put that together with um, with what, uh, the volumes that I'm editing which you mentioned, Uh, Also, this summer, I believe, the Library of America is doing uh, a volume of Vonnegut's early uh, novels. So we'll have The Sirens of Titan and Player Piano and, I I suspect, Mother Night. Um, So we're getting uh, a bunch of resurrected 50s science fiction in in this year alone. Yep. And the Sheckley stories stand up really well. So the next question that comes up, and it's one that I talked to the Library of America people about, of course, is, Uh, Well, does that mean you move on to the '60s? Is are we doing the '50s because the '50s are important, uh, or are we doing the '50s because it's a good place to start?
0: Hmm. Well, I I guess that this circles around some other questions that that arose around the podcast, Uh, and you'd have to—I mean, we have to sort of work out individually what we think personally are the best decades or not, and what a best decade would mean. I think there's no doubt the '50s were an important decade, but the really the interesting thing about talking about this from a historical perspective, and I respect Barry's knowledge enormously, and I'm not trying to sort of sit here and second-guess it, though I, there are a few points I probably didn't put in last week because I knew he couldn't hear us very well due to the connection. But, um, you know, there was some great stuff in the 60s. It was kind of important. And there was some great stuff in the 70s. That was kind of important. And certainly mm. in the 80s. The 80s were really good. That was kind of important. Not so sure about the 90s, but, you know, the 90s are still, that, still kind of young. Right. Um, so, I mean, as we get more and more historical perspective, I think you can see that there are different reasons for thinking that different decades are really important. I mean, there was a tweet that went past, and I'm going to quote it from memory, so it'll probably be incorrect. But our good friend and colleague Farah Mendelssohn, sort of said, "Well, why do we always sign up for the convention wisdom, basic- conventional wisdom, basically that the 50s were the last hot time of science fiction, when really, from a certain perspectives, the 70s were the best time." That was when there were all these exciting new women riding coming, women writers coming through, and uh, all these other sort of strength. And I can certainly see her argument. You know, um, it, it, it all depends well, on the perspective that you're coming at it from,
1: it? and there's also the classic argument, the old David Hartwell argument, of or whoever originated it, that the, you know the golden decade is the one that you personally remember as the golden decade. Um, I think the argument. Okay, here here are the arguments that have really nothing to do with. With writers or literature, but everything to do with publishing, mm. uh, you can argue for the '40s being a, 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 well, the '30s being a golden decade because the pulp magazines emerged as a huge, huge force then. Yeah, um, and a, a lot of science fiction got published. It was like a, 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 I guess you could say, it was kind of like this primordial plasma yeah. of, of just enormous numbers of stories, of which some emerged to be pretty good, and eventually that, you know. Solidify. Oh, this is this is a wonderful metaphor that began to solidify into the planets of you know of Campbell and so forth and so on. Sure. Um. So without, you know, so you could make an argument without the thirties, you wouldn't have had the forties. But nobody's going to want to defend very many of the actual stories of the thirties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In modern, um, the forties, you get the Campbell era, which was you know uh, I think Asimov is actually the one who coined the term the golden age for that period, the, the Campbell period, uh, and yeah, a group of mature, a very important group of mature science fiction writers, you know, developed during that decade. But, um, but it's a very narrow range of a particular kind of science fiction. Also, um, the argument that we were making about the fifties, which has less to do with the writers at all, has to do with the fact that there was suddenly a book market for science fiction.
0: Well, that's there was a true. Huge
1: paperback. Market. There was a novel market. You could write original novels. There was a lot of freedom. There were, uh, interestingly enough, I was just looking this up. There were at the beginning of the decade, in 1950, there were 25 science fiction magazines on the market. At the beginning of the decade, in 1960, there were six. Mm. So there was you know, a huge boom in um, magazines which petered out during that decade for various reasons that had to do with the collapse of the American news service and the competition from paperbacks and the competition from television and so forth and so on. But, okay, you could make this argument that that cleared the field for the 60s, to really do new and interesting things that might not have happened had the 50s gone on.
0: True, true.
1: Um, you could make it, you could... Make that had the 50s... had this collapse not happened at the end of the 50s, science fiction of the 60s might have been a lot more boring than it would have... than it turned out otherwise.
0: Possibly so. I mean, the, the one of the things which was interesting last week, I thought, was Barry was making the point that, in his opinion... The quality of the writing in the 50s was better than at any other time before or or after. Um, And that got some animated response from another close friend of the podcast, our friend and colleague, Cheryl Morgan, who was saying, Mm -hmm. you know, who who was expressing some. I don't know what the exact term for some. Well, she she was expressing the view that that was a very conservative, I think way of looking at things, and that surely the mm. art form of science fiction had you know, could continue to evolve and grow, and that it could develop in new ways, and that those new ways would be uh, different from what was valued in the 50s, but would be part of the outgrowth and evolution of the field. And I think mm. she has a point. You know, I mean, after all, you're in a situation where if a mailing list that I'm on is correct, apparently Michael Moorcock called Samuel Delaney illiterate in the 60s. Oh, really? Yeah! Uh,
1: it's entirely feasible Um, one of the things that uh, that I think Cheryl is saying and that I completely agree with is that whatever decade you pick out for your golden age or for your favorite age
0: you
1: you wouldn't want that it it would not have been a wonderful time if it had gone on you don't want a golden age to go on you don't want the science fiction the the grand space operas of of the 30s Edmund Hamilton and so forth you really don't want those to go on for the next 20 or 30 years. You don't want Campbell's uh, version of Astounding to go on well into the 50s, because it just... Um, it, it did, as a matter of fact, after it, it's still hmm. going on. Um, you didn't want Galaxy, with its satirical science fiction, to go on and on, and you certainly didn't want the New Wave or Cyberpunk to just become, you know, senile old genres uh, that, that, that wouldn't go away. Things have to change.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So, you know... If- so the... Um, the uh, I mean, is right. The 50s was not a golden age for women science fiction writers. There were a lot of good ones. They were publishing mostly in the magazines. A lot of the books they did were books like Xenna Henderson's Are The People, which is a collection of short stories. But in the 60s and 70s, when suddenly you get you know, Le-, Le Guin and uh, Russ and Vonda McIntyre and, um, and the early Anne McCaffrey and so forth and so on, I think it's absolutely true to say that in, in the mid-1950s, very few people would have imagined that uh, 25 years later, you'd be saying the most important science fiction writer in the world is Ursula Le Guin.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this, and it kind of does touch on what we've talked about a little, well, a lot, but it repeats a little bit. With this idea of a golden age, is it actually a good, I- good idea or a somewhat pernicious one? You know, um, is a golden age a literary phenomenon, an academic phenomenon, a biological phenomenon for readers? Um there's a lot to be said for filtering and sorting and thinking about what happens in our field, but is it a bad thing, I guess, to be creating or attempting to create a single canon and a single canonical history? Because, I mean, the canonical history, the the, the Gernsback continuum would agree that the 50s are, in fact, I guess, pretty much the golden age. They are, mm. you know, you, you've you've had the whole... Evolu- you know, the, the beginning of, uh, of Amazing Stories through to the, you know, the the height of the pulp era, the solidification of the pulp era and the creation, you know, the, the beginning of the book market, the first round of big, big writers doing that stuff. And that round of people who, if you were to look at that sort of, as we were discussing before the podcast, the 1959 Hugo Ballot, and you see Blish and Heinlein and Sheckley and Budras and Kornbluth, uh, you know, all of the book of guys, um... Mm. Writing great stories which really read well today, though they may not resonate for every single reader. Um, it's hard, though, to agree that that has to be the golden age. And even when you say that, you know, sort of it's okay to look at the 70s as a golden age for involvement of women and increasing politicization of the field, though I suspect that's actually an after effect of the 60s, isn't it mm. wiser? Isn't it a clearer way of seeing the field to try and set aside this thing where we have to preference one over the other and we can instead look at the evolution of the field and try and see how it's got to where it is and try and find the individual points of value through through the field without trying to s- sort of set what, the whole thing in, in amber and preference one part of it over the other.
1: Uh, no, I, th- I, th- I think you're right, but I think it's a useful way of organizing the way we think about the history of the field. And there are periods of specific ferment, and this, again, is, is kind of an extra-literary consideration. You know, when Asimov and, and Heinlein and DeCamp were all talking to each other and talking to Campbell, there was a, there was a distinctly, you know, uh, uh, fermenting kind of uh, movement and dialogue going on. The same thing was happening in the early 50s uh, with a group, I think, they're all just budge called the class of 52 or something. People began began publishing, young writers who began publishing in 52 and 53 yep. were people like uh, Budras and and, and and Phil Dick and William Ten and Sheckley and um, uh, Michael Shar and a few others. And they all kind of talked to each other. So there was a conscious movement there. That doesn't mean that the fiction, that we have to you know elevate that fiction above uh, other fiction. Uh, a, p- a parallel that comes to mind is um, Paris in the 20s. I mean, I loved reading about Paris in the 20s. I read Hemingway's Immovable Feast. I read memoirs by Morley Callahan. I fell. I was a complete sucker for the Woody Allen movie. (laughs) And yet, if you really look at what people read, I mean, as much as all these great creative minds were there, we don't read a lot that was written in Paris in the 20s. No. We read a lot by the people who were there, but... There, was, there wasn't anything magical about the actual productivity. I think the same thing is true with the 50s or the 60s. There were moments when science fiction seemed to organize itself and seemed to know what it was doing. Uh, but even if you go back and look at the New Wave anthologies, um, uh, the, the, most, the most famous American one, which is Judith Niles, it's surprising how few of those stories you remember. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and so, so, but that doesn't mean the New Wave wasn't important. No. Um, so, so you, so you end up, uh, like I say, organizing uh, to try to understand the history of science fiction, but to say that one decade is inherently better than another, um, uh, first of all, denies that there's any evolution going on in the field, which is another question that mm. is a good question. Sure. Which and, I think there is. Well, I think there is, but does that, well, of course there's evolution going on in the field. Uh, I guess what I, when I object to the idea of evolution in literature is um, that it seems to demean earlier efforts. Ah, you know there, there may be evolution going on in the field, but not a lot of dystopian novels are really a lot better than Brave New World, and uh, you know not a lot of um, uh, planetary stupid masculine adventures are much better than Edgar Rice Burroughs.
0: No, and I guess you'd have to say, whilst I truly believe that the average quality of writing in an issue of Asimov's in 2012 is better than an average issue of Amazing Stories in 1928, and I'm happy, though I don't know it because I didn't read it closely enough, to take Barry's assertion that an average issue of Astounding or... um, Galaxy or something in the 1950s was better than an issue of Astounding in the 1940s or the 1930s. Um, that has to do with craft, and I believe that on average, craft is one of those things where you hit a certain point. So I'm not—I don't know that I think actually when I when I try and parse this you know, reasonably, I don't know that I think that a story written today is necessarily any better or worse than a story written in the 1950s. And I think, on average for craft, I don't think there's necessarily any difference. I think there was an evolution, and then I think you get maybe small increments, and they are more individual story-to-story increments. Mm. Then you get the complexity of the story matter, and that varies. I have no doubt, and this is not a criticism, and he alluded to it himself very clearly, some of the reasons for the preferencing of the 50s in our conversation last week on Barry's behalf has to do with his own age and his own reading of current material as opposed to earlier material yeah so you know and that's, I, uh, hmm?
1: well without rehashing too much of what he said I mean he he mentioned the the quintessential 50s writer as one that almost nobody reads anymore Mark Clifton yeah and I think that's true I think there was a kind of um, I, I think if you look at mainstream fiction in the, in the 1950s, you find the same thing. You find a lot of writers that nobody reads anymore, like mm-hmm. Sloan wrote. Uh, so, um, so, so, yeah. There's there, there's a point at which you can perfect something you've been doing for decades. And in terms of that sort of mainstream idea of science fiction, the 50s did it better than the 40s did because it was doing something. So, something very much like the same thing, in other words, you perfect the craft and get it better and better. I think what happened in the 60s, which was radically different, is that you had a group of writers, and ironically, I think Barry was one of them, mm-hmm. who more looked at that science fiction and said, well, I, that's not what we want to do at all. In other yep. words, the, 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 the 60s science fiction we began to see from Delaney and, and, and Dish and the LeBlanc and Russ and that sort of thing, weren't people failing to live up to the ideals of the 40s and 50s? There were people who were essentially rejecting those
0: ideals. Yes, or evolving them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. The other thing thing is that, I mean, and I'm sure that Barry is a a complete exception to this, the truth of the matter is, uh, and this sort of circles around in time, everybody forms these opinions, but most people don't read them. Anyway, most of the people who you're talking about this stuff and having opinions haven't read it anyway. And so it's extrapolations and guesswork and I read one book of stories from the fifties, so that's probably what that's like. And I read a couple issues of astounding so that's probably what that what's that what that's like. You know, that sort of a thing.
1: Think, uh, to some extent that's where you have to make a distinction between people who are students or scholars or fans of the field who really want to get a a comprehensive understanding of the decades, and people who are just reading for fun. I mean yep. uh Absolutely, there's, uh, there's there's a point at which, and I, this is what I come across when I'm trying to teach science fiction, which I do rarely, is the things that seem to me to be automatic classics because I grew up grew up knowing there were knowing they were classics, mean absolutely nothing to my students. Yeah. I mean, try teaching Olaf Stapleton to a class of eighteen year olds.
0: Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, I mean, but I mean, let, let me give you, give you a quick quick example, okay? Uh, because we were discussing it, and just so that everybody can understand the path by which we got to here, we were talking about Kit Reed, who's a fine writer, and that led us to the 1959 Hugo Ballot, because Kit was up against Brian Alders for the best new author of the year in 1959, and they both perplexingly, bizarrely, strangely lost out to no award, on which we can only say, in fact, on which we can say nothing else, really, I guess. But we also talked about people who have read the current Nebula Ballot, now, there are 10 stories, if you can believe it, in the short story category alone in uh, the 19th, on the 1959 Hugo Ballot. Now, mm-hmm. it is now 2012, so it's the best part of, what, 53 years later? Something like that. Right. 59, yeah, 53 years later. I'm going to tell you, I reckon I've read four or five of the stories on the uh, 1958, 59 Hugo short story ballot. I've never read Trigger Man by J.F. Bone, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. I've never read They've Been Working On by Anton Lee Baker. I think I've read Theory of Rocketry by C.M. Kornbluth. I don't think I've ever read Space to Swing a Cat by Stanley Mullen. I mm-hmm. have re- re- read Rum, Rum Titty Titty Tam Ta Tea* by Fritz Leiber. I've not read Nine y- Yards of Cloth by Manly Wade Wellman. I have read The Men Who Murdered Muhammad by Alfred Bester. I've not read The Age of the Sea by Odris or the advent on 12, Channel Twelve by C.M. Cornbluth, and I've read the winner, That Hellbound Train by Robert Bloch. Mm-hmm. How many do you think you've read?
1: I would well, I was going to the same. Uh, I certainly uh, have read That Hellbound Train, which is uh, which is interesting because that's not a science fiction story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one that stood out on the list as being one that I recognized fifty years later as an established classic was the was the bester story. Yeah. Uh, the the men who Murdered mohammed is, is is one of a handful of, partly because he didn't write that much short fiction hmm. but it's been anthologized probably more than anything else on that list i'd read that i'd read the Cornbluth, um and some of the others uh you're right are even writers whose names i barely recognize
0: now let, let um, let's let's segue so, again yeah. yeah and you and i are well uh, again just
1: to put them on the track, yeah yeah, I was going to say, we read a lot, and there there are stories there and writers there that just – you're either a complete blank or a very faint lull in the distance.
0: I've heard the name Stanley Mullen before. I've never heard of Anton Baker or J.F. Bone, I confess. Never, ever, ever.
1: Um, I've
0: So, you know, that's sort of – okay. Now compare that with the 2011 Nebula Award short story category, right? Uh-huh. Let's see how you go. Her Husband's Hands by Adam Troy Castro, which I've read. Mama, Not me. <laughs> Mama, we In are... My, z-
1: Sorry? I, I, I wait for you to put together year's best. I wait for you and Gardner and David and Catherine. Then I'll read the short fiction, but <laughs> go ahead.
0: But there's Mama, We Are Zenya Your Son by Tom Crosshill, no. who, who I confess I'd never heard of before that story. Ship Birth by Elliot de Bodard. That uh, I know. M- Movement by Nancy Fulda, or Fulda. No. Um, The Axiom of Choice by David W. Goldman, uh, which I confess I'd I'd not heard of him before the ballot came out. The Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu. Yes. And The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees by E. Lily Yu, who joins an an elite group, actually, I think by getting her first published story onto the Nebula Ballot. Onto the Nebula Ballot. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: Uh, The other interesting distinction between uh, the two ballots is that in, in, in the 1959 ballot, the, what kind of jumped out at me was the fact that this uh, uh, demonic fantasy by, by Robert Bloch won, because a fantasy story winning a Hugo Award uh, was unusual in the 50s. Bloch was a beloved Toastmaster. He was one of the, you know, he was his generation's version of what Connie Willis is today. Enormously entertaining yeah. and very much in demand, and a beloved figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that, as far as I can tell, the stories I've read on this year's list are, are mostly fantasies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they are... I, uh, are they? Let me have a look. Uh, no. Get out of town. It depends on your things. God's War is science fiction.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm talking about short story balance.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, they are. Well, that, I mean, that's partly because I believe, and somebody out there who knows these things will correct me, I'm sure, that there are different populations. I mean, I think if you look at the 1958 Hugo voting body or 1959 Hugo voting body, they were voting for science fiction, by and large, and it was intended to be for science fiction, so I dare say the block was a little controversial, whereas the the nebulas are overtly for fantasy and science fiction now.
1: They are now, back in the 50s. Well, there there weren't nebulas back in Hmm. the 50s. But the science fiction... Writers of America did become the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. They did.
0: So it's an overt overt
1: thing. Yeah, it was very overt, very
0: deliberate. And I will say, I've read all of the novel ballot from 1959. As I suspect have you, there's A Case of Conscience by Jim Blish, which Mm -hmm. won, obviously. Have Space It Will Travel by Heinlein, which I remember fondly. Uh, Immortality Inc. by Bob Sheckley. Enemy Stars by Paul Anderson and Who by Aldous Budras. In fact, I think, don't you have two of those in your book?
1: We have two of those, uh, yeah.
0: absolutely. You probably just skimmed off the Hugo ballot. Um, <laughs> and then there's the <laughs> novel. Sorry. I,
1: I, looked, I, I did look at all the Hugo, Hugo ballots, and I was I was surprised at two things. I was surprised at how many of the books have just been forgotten, and I was surprised at how many of them haven't been forgotten, but probably should be.
0: Mm. And then uh, this year's Nebula ballot, um, the nominees are God's War by Cameron Hurley, which is a first novel, a science fiction novel, Mm-hmm. Kingdom of Gods by Nora Jemison, which I think is the third in her series. Firebird oh, yeah. by Jack McDevitt, which is, I think, a space opera, and the uh, the latest installment in a long-going serial of novels. Uh, Embassy Town by China Mieville. Mechanique by Genevieve Valentine, which is a fantasy, and among others, which is a science fiction or a fantasy, depending on how you look at the world. Mm-hmm. So, yes, and a good ballad, I have to say.
1: It's a strong ballot, and I think that, uh, by and large, novel by novel, uh, in purely literary, stylistic, organizational, uh, structural, characterological terms, most of the novels on the current ballot would stand up favorably to most of the ones from from 50 years ago. Uh, By and large, science fiction and fantasy writers at that literary level are probably better than they used to be.
0: Let me ask you: Is there was there a greater sort of energy to those books in the fifties, or is that just a after the fact construct by people looking back at the joys of their youth?
1: I was surprised at how much energy there actually was in them, and I was surprised when I was looking at this collection of Robert uh short stories how much energy there was there because there was, uh, I think, a sense of uh, either discovering something completely new and playing with it, which is which is the sense you get from reading uh, Alfred Bestram, uh or the sense of refining something that had been out mm-hmm. there uh, before, so that there, the tradition, even the traditions they were writing in, were still new to them, to the writers yeah. at that time. So there, there's absolutely a sense of excitement in in those novels. I think it still comes through. Yeah, uh, I, think it, I think it comes through in novels from the 60s as well, just not all of them. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, th- 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 there were novels of the fifties which I, I I was writing an um, essay recently and I had um, occasion to look up and read actually not reread I'd never read it before a novel by Lester Del Rey called The Sky Is Falling which I think yep. may have been an Ace Double, early fifties and this sort of thing um, and what it reads like is an extended pulp story I mean pretty much cardboard characters a fairly predictable situation some interesting ideas but everything organized around the punchline of the idea. In other words, yeah. the, the the notion that Del Rey was putting into worrying about characters, his characters were, were drawn out of, you know, uh, the pulp central casting office. Uh, and, and it didn't hold up at all. So when you look at a lot of stuff like that, and I'm sure this is true of any period, yeah, um, you look at a lot of the stuff in the 50s that didn't win the Hugo Awards, didn't get reprinted, that didn't become classics, uh, a lot of it is pretty awful.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then, I mean, a lot of the stuff that doesn't make a ballot today is appalling as well. I think that's a, that's a normal thing. There is one thing that does occur to me about the difference between the ballots, and I'd be curious if someone with oh much more time on their hands than me were to do this. And I'll tell you, if you look at the nineteen fifty nine Hugo ballot and compare it to the nineteen or the two thousand and twelve eleven Nebula ballot, mm. those six novels in, of today are much longer than the um, the Hugo ballot. In 1959, I reckon sort of you can get those five, the five books from 59 into one decent omnibus, but you'd struggle with um, the ones from uh, 2011.
1: I think it's absolutely true, and I think that there are reasons for that, which, which worked our advantage with the Library of America stuff because you are trying to get nine or ten novels into two volumes. You're really glad at that 160-page page link that, that Signet Books used to enforce yeah. on people or Valentine Books. Yeah. Um, but that, basically, again, that's that's partly the, uh, the the result of publishing exigencies. You don't have the same binding machines that you were using yeah. to make paperbacks in the yeah. 1980s. So sure. You don't have to. Uh, you can have to make a book come out to 160 pages. Yeah.
0: And in fact, even if I were to try and cheat less and use a, a more like to like, uh, it happens that the 1972 Nebulas, which is uh, 30 years ago exactly, uh, that ballot also had six novels on it. And even uh-huh. then, I reckon they were all exponentially shorter, because there's what, Time of Changes by Bob Silverberg, By Walt worlder World or by Paul Anderson, The Devil is Dead by R.A. Lafferty, Half Past Human by T.J. Bass, Margaret Nye by Kate Wilhelm, and The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest they are somewhat shorter than this year's Nebula Mellet, which is not a I criticism think... of it, just an observation.
1: Well, I, th- I, th- I think a couple of things may have happened. Um, and it would be interesting, looking at science fiction alone, to figure out when, when the page length changed. In fantasy, it's pretty easy to figure out when it all changed. I mean, mm. Fantasy novels barely existed as a paperback market before Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And Lord of the Rings established a huge, three-thick-volume model, which fantasy writers are following even to this day. Yeah. In science fiction, I think there may be a couple of times, and I'm old enough to remember when it was shocking to people, how, how thick Stranger in a Strange Land was.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or The Mode in God's Eye. There was a point at which the idea that science fiction could break out of... It was almost, in a way, like breaking out of the pulp era. Yeah. Breaking out of the paperback era into hardcovers that could be any length you wanted. It could become bestsellers. Um, there, you know, in, in the 50s, those books were rare. There was, Yeah. Um, uh, there was things like A Canticle full. One One thing, which is almost a symbolic change, if I'm not mistaken, is that the 19... Um, I think the 1960 Hugo went to Heinlein for um,
0: uh, Starship Troopers. Yeah. And
1: I think 1961 Hugo went to Heinlein for Stranger in a Strange Land. And hmm. the shift between those two novels. No, alone, no, no, no. 62, 60 and 62. Yeah. Okay, 60 and 62. Um, well, look at the dip- dip- look. Just look at the difference between those two novels. Sure. Well, one is taking a science fiction, an old science fiction militaristic theme to a certain extreme and is, is short and efficient and brutal and, and problematical in all sorts of ways. Two years later, he's writing something which ideologically seems almost at odds with the uh, earlier novel, is much longer and is uh, much kind of looser in terms of its structure. Uh, sure. it's, it's almost as though you know, Heinlein is one of the people who pioneered the idea that you could publish long science fiction novels and get away with it. <laughs>
0: I would have to look back and be very careful as to what... I mean, it sounds like a reasonable observation, uh, particularly since that was the the, you know, the heart of the era of the Ace Doubles, which were short, tightly mm-hmm. written books. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to take your assertion that Stranger of Strange Land was the first enormously successful fat science fiction novel. Uh, I will say that if he pioneered that for us, I'm not sure I thank him completely.
1: Well, uh, and uh, I'm not making the claim that, the pi- the, that it created that I think within the genre it created the sense you could do that. Yeah. In the early fifties there were novels like George Stewart's Earth Abides, which I still adore having read it when I was a kid and I reread it for years ago. There was something like Bernard Wolf Bernard Wolf's limbo, but those were not coming from within the science fiction field really.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, those are people who are already out in the grown up world of publishing where you can write a four or five hundred page novel if you really want to. Yeah. I think Heinlein is one of the people that gave science fiction writers permission to do that. It was sometime in the 60s that, that Fritz Leiber wrote The Wanderer. I'm mm-hmm. uh, pretty sure it was the longest piece of fiction he had written to that point.
0: Believably, I, I could believe that to be the case. Though he never wrote anything that was very long. No. You know, I mean, that, some degree that, you know, that, that's a choice of the writers as well as the nature of the era. And I'm sure that if you were to map through, this, through the 80s and into the 90s, off the top of my head, I imagine there's a corollary between, uh, first of all, the popularity of books like Lord of the Rings, which are long, fat books and are successful, mm-hmm. uh, on through into the, the rise of the uh, commercial epic fantasy being successful. And probably trailing somewhere behind that, I imagine by about two or three, four or five years, is the rise of fat, long science fiction books. Though I suspect as well, the science fiction books, are, for, for whatever reason, are disguised slightly by tending to write series and serials. Rather than writing single long books, I think that may be true, and I think another
1: factor that plays into that is there was a sense, um, of false or not, among writers uh, of, of the '60s that that a long science fiction book probably meant a literary science fiction book, or meant a science fiction book that was being pitched to a literary audience. Uh, *Stranger in a Strange Land* made a much more noticeable impact in the mainstream outside of the science fiction world than even Starship Troopers had mm-hmm. And by the, by the time you get into the 70s, you're beginning to get things like Dahlgren, which is a massively ambitious, very literary mm-hmm. and very science fictional novel uh, by, by a, a very ambitious young writer. So, so that's one way of going. the other way of going as you say is to write uh, you know series that, that sort of compound themselves and but that are essentially continuation of the old science fiction narratives just longer. Some people never did that. Clark never really fell into the pattern. Arthur Clark, I don't think, ever wrote a really long novel.
0: Yeah. Um. I don't think he ever had that in him. I mean, I, I don't mean that as a criticism of Clark. Uh, apart from the idea, you know, the, the, the basic thing that, for the most part, he was a evolution of a, of a single idea, single science idea exactly. kind of a writer. Um, I don't know that he was ever, in fact, a particularly strong novelist. He was a much stronger short story writer, really, even allowing for the popularity and strength of books like Rendezvous with Rama and... You know, a f- a Fountains of Paradise and whatever else. He was really a well, short story guy.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think he was he was an ideal man, is what they used to call people like that.
0: Yeah. And uh, he
1: was not interested or very good at doing things like character or, or, or writing stylistically interesting descriptions. He was very good at at plugging one idea after another. And when you read a novel of his, like uh, Imperial Earth, for example. Um, then it was just a catalog of wonderful Clarkian ideas, and once the catalog was more or less done, yeah, you really didn't want to read anything more about these really uninteresting characters.
0: <laughs> Something like that, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you're absolutely right. Nobody
1: wants to see a long Arthur C. Clarke novel.
0: <laughs> no, I mean some people. I mean some people have tried to to do that or have evolved it. I mean, uh, surely. Al Reynolds, for example, sits in the tradition of, if you like, writing a better, longer Arthur C. Clarke novel. Well, sure. And I think that what Clarke did was provide a template
1: of, uh, of that later writers, like Al Reynolds, could make a lot of use of. I mean, and, and I think this is another thing that happens in the history of science fiction. It's kind of fascinating. Writers that sometimes aren't themselves um, that accomplished in certain ways establish templates for later writers. The, yeah. the first example is, is, well, Olaf Stapleton. Uh, I'm sure gave three generations, four generations of science fiction writers ideas. That doesn't make Stapleton more readable to a modern audience than he ever was. No. He didn't write novels. He wrote chronicles. And the chronicles were just marvels of imagination. But, you know, what you... And I, I, I thought for for many... Actually, somebody said this to me once, and I don't know who it, who it was, that so much of, of especially British science fiction since the 1930s, has been working out ideas that Stapleton laid out uh, in in those two or three novels.
0: Yes. Okay, let me ask you a question. This is really unfair, but since we're not playing the game properly, uh, first of all, do you have a favorite decade? No,
1: I really don't. Um, I mean, I've I've been doing a lot of work on the 50s, and I've grown very fond of the 50s, and uh, the more I, I put together this... Collection, but, but I also did a lot of reading about the fifties to find out how annoying it was in <laughs> and crazy what it And you you can't. Hey, here, here's the thing: is in, in, in the beginning of the decade, I don't think you can really, uh, with a limited number of people uh, going into the field. This is before we had clarions, before we had MFA programs. Um, I don't really think you could populate, um, you know, twelve monthly issues of twenty-five different science fiction magazines with quality fiction. No. In the early fifties. But the magazines got filled up anyway. So it happens the, uh, today. Uh, I suppose it does. Oh.
0: No, no, I'm sure it does. I mean, you know, I, I, I defy. I mean, uh, okay, I, I haven't read the entire run of everything from the 50s, but I, I mean, I think that irrespective of the quality level, in some ways, if this makes sense, mm-hmm. the percentage of not good work to good work is probably about the same. I suspect you're right. Uh,
1: but I, I, I guess, and my guess is that uh, this is a version of the old golden age of science fiction, it's 12 argument, that that your sense of discovery, there there are two periods of discovery that I just, just recall distinctly in, in, in my own reading of science fiction. And yeah. one of them was the 50s because the 50s was when I was, well, the, the earliest science fiction I read was stuff from the 50s, yeah. or stuff that reprinted from the 40s. So that's the period of discovering science fiction at all. Yeah. All this is out there and you're establishing you know, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, parameters of what you think of as science fiction came about from the 40s and 50s. There's sure. Asimov stories, the Heinlein stories, there's Sturgeon and Bradbury on the other, there's the Simak, all this kind of thing. I guess there's another kind of sense of discovery, uh, which is almost a sense of liberation, where you think you know something about science fiction yeah. and then the 60s or the 70s come along and you read something uh, like some of the stories in Dangerous Visions*, so or you read something like uh, The Female Man or Nova, uh, mm-hmm. which is the, the Delaney novel, film, and then you realize science fiction is a lot more than I thought it could be. Sure. And, and that becomes, in some ways, a more, more mature kind of revelation, that you realize uh, that what I've been reading all along was, was very good and very important for what it was, But there are all these things that it wasn't even trying to do that people are are, are trying to do right now. One of the most striking stories I remember reading, and I can't tell you when I read it, was was Ballard's The Terminal Beach. And I was just absolutely stunned by that. I thought it was one of the best stories I'd ever read. And he was playing with science fiction ideas, uh, but not playing with them at the same time and and creating this really hypnotic imagery that I later learned would be... Ballardian imagery, and Ballard, and Ballard became one of the writers who became an adjective.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. <sighs> so tell me, if, Gary, yeah, what were you we going to say? Well, if Joanna Russ had become an adjective, would it be Russian? <laughs> no, the adjective is feminist. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking around. I mean, I, 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 well, actually, funnily enough, I mean, we've touched on this before. She's almost Having that happen now, I mean, uh, I I was talking to somebody else about science fiction in the field yesterday and saying that you could argue that somebody needs to do a proper um, examination, devote an issue of something to not women in science fiction today. I think that's a very old idea to some degree and not a helpful one, but to the perception of gender in the field today, because gender and um, being inclusive is such a huge part of uh, the, the, the dialogue around the field now that mm-hmm. I think it would be useful to look at it in some meaningful way. It would be controversial, it would be difficult, but I think it would be valuable.
1: Well, I think to some extent the tip Tiptree Awards try to generate that discussion by making the awards focus on gender portrayals yes. rather than on sure, specific kind sure, of science sure. fiction. And, and there are some interesting discussions that come around you know, every year when those awards are announced, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the, but that's one of the revelations that changed the field in the 60s was the fact that, uh, you know, there had been women writers. There'd been important women writers. There'd been very important women editors. Hmm. In the, but but that whole, di- but as a topic, as a focus of of the fiction, uh, was something that uh, just seemed to. By by the time you started reading. Uh, Le Guin and Russ and McIntyre and some other and Susie Mckicharnas. Yeah, you began to realize there's a there's, there's an enormous amount that's been missing. Doesn't mean that this earlier fiction was defective in some way. No, no. But no. it's that there was a dimension missing from it, which now you're discovering it all over again. Sure. Um, and I, I will say I think any... to some extent cyberpunk. I think I did when I first. Became... Yeah. Hmm.
0: No, we're gonna say keep going.
1: Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I, was, I was I was going to say that um that's what I find can because. The discovery of science fiction, that, that that moment of revelation, the road to Damascus moment, which every science fiction writes about in his autobiography, that's a great moment. But a, but what keeps you reading science fiction is the discovery that it can do it over and over and over again. Yeah. And it may be unfair that uh, that women were less visible in science fiction in the 50s than they were in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But the fact that they became visible was a huge... Uh, Yes. Piece of evidence that the field could change and grow and open up and unfold.
0: Yeah,
1: I think that's true. And it's, it's not just in terms of gender roles. I mean, I think certainly in the last ten or fifteen years, we've seen it open up internationally. Yeah. You know, we've seen uh, Caribbean science fiction and, and Nigerian American science fiction and Finnish science fiction and uh, and, and all this is, is stuff which has been around before, but now it seems to become part of the mainstream. I think that's in true. In a way that it hasn't been.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you one thing I don't, if if someone were to ask me how I'd like this to go, the one thing I don't really want to see is an examination of numbers. I think think that's the least interesting part of this discussion. I think it would be much more interesting to hear people talk about the state of the field, about causal factors. I mean, numbers are important, but numbers are symptoms, they're not causes. So it would be good to see some kind of discussion about what the field's like, why it's like that. How, how if it needs to change, it might change. How it is, has been changed in the last five or ten years? I mean, my feeling is it's changed in the last five years. So I'd be interested to see that discussed and to see the you know the the, the discussion about it.
1: So oh, I think know. you're absolutely right. And I think that uh, when you, when we start talking about issues like this, we have to look at qualitative questions rather than quantitative questions. Yeah. Uh, a good example is if you you know if you add up. Um, Oh, if, if, if you add up the number of Nigerian science fiction, Nigerian or Nigerian-American science fiction stories published yeah. in the last years, you're going to pretty much end up with Nnedi Okorafor. Okay. Uh, I'll take your word for it. There's yes. nothing wrong with that, because what she's done has had an enormous impact. Yeah. Every, every, every book she's written, every novel she's written, uh, and, and you've had a, a, one of her early horror short stories in, in one of the Eclipse Anthologies, um Everything has had has generated discussion. So the quality of that impact, she has made us aware of Africa as a science fiction, uh, as a source of science fiction. She certainly championed uh, uh, so, some African writers and African filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the impact has been considerable, even though the numbers don't reflect that at all. Yeah. Same things do with Caribbean science fiction writers. You've got, uh, you've, I guess, you've got Toby uh, Buckle and Nalo Hopkinson who sure. came from there originally, and Karen Lord all of whom have done really terrific work. But if you start saying, well, is there a a fair numeric representation of the Caribbean in science? Of course there's not. There are a handful of writers. Yeah. And we'd like to see more of them. And the more this happens, the more it increases the chances that we will see more of them.
0: Yes. So how do we contribute to this discussion, Gary? I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it, right? And I'm aware that whenever anybody else says this kind of thing to me, Mm-hmm. I kind of say, well, get involved. Go do it. You know, like, if you're not happy about this in the field, then try to change it. If you're interested in that, then go and work on it. Now, I don't have a lot of time myself in some ways to do it, and I try and remain aware, but what can can we do? What can could Street listeners do, Gary? Um, That's
1: a good question, and I don't... The, but should they do anything? Um, um, I think
0: anything which contributes to awareness
1: is valuable. Um. Well, one of the, okay, here's one of the things we've tried to do uh, with the... Uh, that Cheryl Morgan and I have been working on the Translation Award. Sure, yeah. To make uh, English-speaking readers more aware of uh, science fiction and fantasy works not originally published in English, to try to create some dialogue. Because as we've talked about before, uh, books don't get translated because it's not a financially viable proposition to translate most science fiction novels mm-hmm. into English. So yeah, making uh, paying attention to that sort of thing. Um, reading widely and and uh, and passing the word on. I mean, one of the things that uh, happened last year, which was very much, I think, a reader-oriented kind of uh, discussion, was uh, uh, the the growth of, of Karen Lord's novel Redemption and in Indigo. Mm-hmm. It got some good reviews, but initially started largely as word of mouth. It got our Crawford Award, which got some more buzz for it, uh, and and eventually ended up uh, you know, on the World Fantasy ballot. Yeah. Um, so so that kind of you know open discussion about uh things and, uh, and and openness to reading new things is something we can all do, and supporting translation and supporting small presses and looking out for things Yes, but there's another there's another reason why we can't do there's things we can't do because we don't know where the next change is coming from. Sure. Uh, did I expect to start reading seven or eight years ago? Yeah. Would, would you have told me that I'd be reading uh, some of my favorite books would be by Finnish writers, by no, you know, Hannu and uh, Sinisalo? And, and
0: no, I don't think I would. But, I, but then I think you'd probably um, identify with this. I don't know that I think that way. If that makes sense, you know, mm. uh, I try to be aware, I try to be inclusive, and da 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 da. But what I don't particularly try to do um, is scoop together the demographics in that way, if you like. Am I a little surprised? Sure, I'm a little surprised. Uh, It's also a little bit, as somebody pointed out, slightly deceptive to emphasize the Finnish nature of uh, Hanurainyemi. Because
1: he writes in English.
0: He writes in English. He spent a lot of time living in Scotland. He associates. He's part of a writer's group with Ian Banks and Charlie Stross and Ken MacLeod. Um, So, you know, he's so it 's perhaps slightly and i don 't say slightly deceptive yeah. though I mean and also because hey the, I mean okay, the one good thing about the modern era is that the reading and writing audience well, no, the, 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 the writing and participating group for science fiction and fantasy is a more complex, complicated representative group uh, i don 't know if it always was, but it certainly is now, and that 's got to be a good thing.
1: So yes well there, are, there are certainly a, it's a more diverse group and I think that's one of the things that happens every time uh, science fiction and fantasy undergoes one of these shifts whether it's yeah. a demographic shift or not when suddenly you have you know there are a lot more women science fiction readers partly because there are a lot more women science fiction writers I've talked to any number of people who have noticed that difference yeah uh, there, there are more uh, just again talking to people I know talking uh, there are probably more gay, Readers of science fiction and fantasy, because they recognize that there is a community within the field, and there are issues that 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 that, that, that they're you know, that, that deal with
0: yeah.
1: issues that they're interested in. I don't there, know if that's
0: true, but I'm willing to accept that it could be.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's probably not as true as it should be, but there are certainly there's certainly more willingness to look at alternative gender roles and alternative sexual roles now than there was yeah. twenty or thirty years ago. I guess we can all agree with that. And that's no longer a taboo subject for science fiction. So the the more science fiction does new things, the more it expands its audience. And the thing that's interesting to me is that, by and large, it's able to do that without losing the old audience.
0: Yes. Fair enough. Since since we are now... No, since we've been rambling for an hour and a bit, and we're getting towards the end of our thing, and since I do try to keep us to an hour, for anybody else listening to the podcast, I actually have a timer, you know. I actually watch it count up. And, and try and keep us to about an hour as a matter of um, self-control, of self-restraint. So, Let me ask you the, the, the least interesting, most obvious question I can ask you about the Nebula Ballot, Gary. Mm-hmm. Winners, category by category, could win, should win. I don't have the list in front of me right
1: now. Should I go get it?
0: Um, you can, or I can go through them for you, whichever you like. i go really quickly. Uh, You're going to get it, are you? Okay.
1: Oh, no, no. Okay, I'll go through it. Okay. The the nominees for novel are
0: God's War by Cam Hurley, The Kingdom of Gods by Nora Jemison, Firebird by Jack McDevitt, Embassy Town by China Mieville, Mechanique by Genevieve Valentine, and among others by Joe Walton. I would guess
1: Will Win, Embassy Town, should Win, among others.
0: Mmm, that's a very good call. I'm going to say. Huh. Certainly should win for me, among others. I- I'm tempted by your choice, but now, you know, I feel like you've taken that you know, the, the 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 could win. I'm going to actually throw you and say Cam- Cameron Hurley because it's a young odd voting group for the the Nebulas, and so I think Cam Hurley could win, but I think uh, Joe Walton should win. Now,
1: uh, and I think one of the things you have to consider every year is, is to some extent where the uh, well, no, where the Nebulas. No, actually the Nebulas. You're right. Um... Hmm. Cameron
0: Hurley could be... Actually, Jennifer Valentine -Valentine actually could well be the person with Cameron Hurley as the unexpected outsider, actually. That's true. That's true. Who knows? Okay. Novella. With Unclean Hands Mm -hmm. by Adam Troy Castro. The Ice Owl by Carolyn Ives Gilman. The Man Who Bridged the Mist by Kidge Johnson. Kiss Me Twice by Mary Robinette Cowell. The Man Who Ended History A Documentary by Ken Liu. And Silently and Very Fast by Catherine M. Valenti. Okay, I've
1: only read two of those, and I would find it hard to think that of the others, I'd find one I like better than The Man Who Bridged the Mist.
0: Okay. Well, I'll I'll say of this that there are three stories there I'd be very happy to see win. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. But let me say that for me, should win is Kids Johnson's The Man Who Bridged the Mist, which I love a very great deal, could win... It's a toss-up between the Mary Cowell and the Cat Valenti, so i say the Mary Cowell. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Novelette. Six Months, Three Days by Charlie Jane Anders. The Old Equations by Jake Carr. What We Found by Jeff Ryman. The Migratory Pattern of Dancers by Catherine Sparrow. Sauerkraut Station by Ferret Steinmetz. Fields of Gold by Rachel Swirsky. And Rays of Light by Brad, Brad R. Torgerson.
1: I've only read the Swirsky and the Ryman, so I'm probably not qualified, uh, although, well, I like both of them, obviously. <laughs> um, Swirsky is 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 one of the newer writers I really admire, and mm. I, I like her getting recognition, so again, based on having read two, I think I'd probably go with, with Rachel Swirsky. I,
0: I think it's interesting about, there's a lot of novelettes that I think could have been there that aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh However, as Rachel Swirsky's editor on Eclipse 4, my only answer to everything must be Fields of Gold by Rachel Swirsky, I think.
1: We're pretty much on the same page here, aren't we?
0: (laughs) Well, you've read my book and you haven't read all the others yet, so you haven't been exposed to some of the other stories as much. Short story Her Husband's Hands by Adam Troy Castro, Mama Wears Enya Your Son by Tom Cresshill, Ship Hard by Elliot. Wrath by Elliot de Bodard, Movement by Nancy Folder, The Axiom of Choice by David Go- Goldman, Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu, and Cartographer's Wasps and the Anarchist Bees by Lily Yu.
1: Um, again, I've only lists, I've only read three of them, and I'm not sure that in terms of the Nebula... Um, I don't know. I, I would ha- i would have to read the whole thing. I like the Ken Liu story quite a bit. Yeah. Um, which is essentially a ghost story. I mean, it's essentially yeah, a it's been very well done and um, I guess of what I've read that would be my choice
0: okay well I would, gi- I would be happy to see the Lou or the you win but I have to mm. say the the the, the 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 Bedard and the Fulda stories are very very good mm. I confess I don't much care about the drama award uh, and I'm happy to just, to skip over it and leave it to those who do and then there's the YA one the YA is a good list the Andre Norton mm-hmm. for a young adult there's mm-hmm. Ultraviolet by R.J. Anderson, Chime by Franny Billingsley, The Girl of Fire and Thorns by Ray Carson, The Boy at the End of the World by Greg Ecott, Everybody Sees the Ants by A.S. King, Akata Witch by Nnedi Okorafor, The Freedom Maze by Delia Sherman, and Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Laney Taylor. Mm.
1: I've read one of... Might, maybe two of those. Mm-hmm. I've read two of them. I would... I'm very fond of Akata Witch, but then I'm a champion of Nettie's, so I'm probably biased.
0: Well, I mean, just allowing for... A, there's, a, there's a couple of books there I'll be frank and say I haven't read, so it's difficult to be across you know, it. I've I'm, no. I'm, I'm not read... I'm, not gonna, not I'm not up for not some, not, some, not, some. some... Anywhere between N- Nettie's book and Delia Sherman's book, both of which I think are terrific, I'd be delighted to see mm-hmm. win, so... And you know what, Gary? On that point, we are well over our hour, and we've probably... In fact, I suspect... Let's be truthful. If everybody could call back when we call out, there might not be that many people there now. You know, I think we've rambled a bit. So we might let them all rest until next week. We haven't heard many suggestions of what to do for our 100th episode, and we remain happily clueless. So, you know, if you have any brilliant ideas... nine or ten episodes
1: away, so any suggestions from anyone would be appreciate
0: it. Yeah, I do think you're right. I I think off the top of my head, I'll have to check it when I get offline, that this is the 90th episode of the Cood Street Podcast. And for for everybody out there, it is the Cood Street Podcast, not the Notes from Cood Street Podcast, not anything else, just the Cood Street Podcast. That's us. And on that happy, cheery, slightly corrective note, farewell, Gary. Talk to you next week, John. Talk to you next week. Bye.